This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by the Kauffman Foundation, investing in educators and lifting up the Kansas City region, which is dedicated to learning together to improve educational and economic success. Learn more at Kauffman.org. A recent case illustrates the perils of trying to censor creative expression in schools. Our teachers say if an artwork is potentially offensive to students, that's often a good sign. Plus, should schools still have valedictorians? Many schools are getting rid of the tradition. Our teachers this week are emphatically against that. And finally, teaching abroad can have its perks, but enough to pull our teachers away from America? Those topics and kids these days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I used to be in the classroom as an English teacher. Now I'm behind the mic as a radio journalist. I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who have a lot on their minds and are ready to talk. So let's introduce them. Greg Brenner, what do you teach? Yeah, high school social studies. Rebecca McIntosh, what do I, you teach? I teach elementary students at a local alternative school. And David Persley, the third teacher at the table today, what do you teach? High school math and computer science. And just... To do some fact-checking, all three of you are still in school. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely. It will never end. That's right. That's right. <laughs> all the snow days. Um, yes, you all have still quite Long a bit of time break. left, right? I mean, weeks. at least two weeks. Yeah. There yes. are weeks yeah. left. Yes. Multiple, well, multiple my weeks. sympathies to Greg, Rebecca, and David, all educators here in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to our first Topic. At San Francisco's George Washington High School, there's little argument that some scenes in a giant mural inside the school are disturbing. The question now is what to do with the mural. It was painted more than 80 years ago by a man named Victor Arnatoff, a left-leaning artist who had his work funded by the Works Progress Administration during the Great Depression. Arnatoff's mural depicts the life of George Washington, the school's namesake. One panel shows Washington pointing west as he towers over a dead Native American lying on the ground. Another panel shows black slaves working in cotton fields. It's scenes like this that prompted a committee made up of school officials, teachers, students, and community members to recently recommend the mural be painted over. The committee's report says in part that the mural, quote, glorifies slavery, genocide, colonization, manifest destiny, white supremacy, and oppression, and traumatizes students of color at the school. But our first guest says calls to cover up Arnatoff's mural are misguided. And in fact, this case from San Francisco is part of a larger troubling trend of schools being pressured to censor complex and, yes, sometimes offensive pieces of art for the sake of guarding young people's sensitivities. We're joined by Dr. Amna Khalid, a professor of history at Carleton College in Minnesota, along with her colleague, Dr. Jeff Snyder, a professor of education studies at Carleton. Dr. Khalid recently wrote a critical analysis of this trend of censoring artwork in schools, paying particular attention to this case of the mural in San Francisco. That was published on the online academic forum, The Conversation. Dr. Khalid, thanks for joining No Wrong Answers. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, a central premise of your argument is that these calls to censor artworks, like this mural in San Francisco, that it prioritizes the impact of the work on a modern-day audience, namely students in this case, over the artist's original intention, so impact over intent. Let's dig into that by talking about the artist who painted this mural at George Washington High School. Who was he, and what do we know about his intention with this mural? 
level, it's difficult to talk about the intention of an artist because um, much of the work is interpreted. However, I think it's important to think about the context within which paintings are made, um, and those can really help illuminate the intent of the artist. And for that reason, um, we cannot overlook the fact that this painting was especially commissioned for a school, and Arnukov chose to present a version of history that was definitely not taught in the schools at that point in time. And so by depicting Native Americans and African Americans in the center of these panels, he was really challenging the ways in which they'd been written out of standard U.S. history textbooks. So tell me more about the artist himself, because I know he had um, his own um, very well-known troubles with the American government, his own political history. Right. So he's an artist who, you know, today we would um, hail as a champion of the left, and he emigrated from Europe to the U.S. He went and apprenticed with Diego Rivera in Mexico for a while, returned to San Francisco, um, actually taught at Stanford. And um, during his time, he really came to uh, sympathize with the labor movements that were going on. He also became a member of the Communist Party, really spoke truth to power in many ways. One example is that he was hauled in front of the um, House un-American activities committee uh, to explain why he'd made this caricature of Nixon, uh, which likened him to McCarthy. So he's really not someone who you would see as celebrating oppression, far from it. You say in your piece in the conversation, the very scenes in this mural that are highlighted by the committee as, you know, potentially glorifying things like oppression and white supremacy are, in fact, they're meant to disturb viewers and, and, and meant to possibly, in some ways, give them a more complex portrait of who George Washington was and his role in American history. I mean, you say, uh, for its time, this mural was, in fact, a radical work. Absolutely. Well, so how should, uh, should modern-day students um, and staff members and community members look at this mural and take it in and interpret it? I mean, I think to understand any piece of work, be it art or otherwise, even if we're talking about um, literature or fiction, you know, you really do need to contextualize it. So in order to understand and appreciate it, you need to know when it was made, and that will help illuminate what the artist is trying to do. And in this case, I think I, I do get the, the issue that people feel disturbed by these images. But the way I would suggest dealing with these is to, to contextualize them and to have responses to this mural. I think once people understand the context, they're far less likely to be offended. The other problem that I think we're having over here is that there seems to be an understanding that art can only be interpreted in one way. And that seems very dogmatic to me. The whole point of art is to kind of start conversation. And, and, and by saying that this mural is offensive, it assumes that people can only respond to it in, way, in one way. So what is lost for students, for educators, for community members um, if this mural is painted over? And we should say the committee has recommended that it be uh, basically taken down, be painted over. Um, that's there's not been a final decision made about this at, at, at mm -hmm. the time of this taping, but um, if that does eventually come to pass, what what do you think would be lost? So is there an opportunity lost for students and staff members and community members at this school? And there's a huge opportunity lost, I feel. Both my colleague Jeff and I are of the mind that this is a wonderful time to actually um, look into how history was taught in the U.S. So it's not only about the 
kind of challenging the origin myths of the nation, but it's also looking at how, over a long period of time, history was actually taught at schools. And this is why it's so important that this mural was actually done at a school. Schools were complicit in teaching a particular kind of history. I've heard objections to this mural and arguments being made that it should be removed and something like this should be archived and put in a museum. And I, and I hear what's trying to be said there, but the whole point of a mural is that you confront it every day and it's there. You can't escape it. And, and it being on the walls of the school is a reminder to us of what the history of the nation is and how schools in particular, these institutions, were complicit in creating these myths. By whitewashing this mural, we literally risk whitewashing our history again, which is Incidentally, the critique that we hear all the time about how there are not representations of Native Americans and African Americans in canonized histories. And most of all, I feel like we lay a precedent for us censoring art, and that's very problematic. Um, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to involve our teachers, so I do want to ask you one last question. So the argument that has been made for why this mural needs to come down in part is that Students of color, especially at George Washington High, walking down the halls of their school, having to see images of, say, black slaves working in fields or a, you know, a pretty gruesome depiction of a, of a dead Native American, that that is traumatizing. What do you say to that argument, that, that, that this mural creates what is, in effect, an unwelcoming environment at school for, for students of color? Right. <laughs> well, I have many thoughts on this. To begin with, I'd say, you know, I'm very uncomfortable with the word trauma being used um, in this context. I feel like this is a medical term that's really emerged more recently and has then kind of migrated into classrooms and in discussions of um, it's being deployed, I feel, in a way to silence and to censor things. So that would be the first thing that I would say, that it's a misapplication of trauma, how the term stands. I can see that the, the piece is disturbing, but I think, to say, you know, our students don't need to be protected. That's not really empowering, I'd say. In education, about the truth of what happened is truly empowering. I, I fail to see why we must see this as dehumanizing and offensive towards Native Americans and African Americans. If anything, I say it's offensive, not offensive, but it shows how dehumanizing um, the founding fathers were. You know, it really complicates history and portrays them in a negative light. So again, it's this kind of understanding that there is only one way to interpret the piece. And what's interesting is that after writing this piece, both Jeff and I have been following some of the comments that have come through. And there is an assumption that all Native Americans and all African Americans are offended by this. Quite to the contrary, there have been voices that are arguing in favor um, of keeping this. So these kinds of arguments of offense and offending the community tend to flatten identities, which I think is also very problematic. Yeah, I mean, that's why you go on in part in your piece to, to say that basically keeping the mural would be more socially justice-minded than painting over it. Absolutely. Uh, well, for our teachers, um, I want to bring you in, Rebecca, David, uh, Greg. Do you think it's good for students to be confronted with challenging, I mean, potentially offensive artistic works, artistic content that would force them to think, force them to confront really complex ideas um, in multifaceted ways? Yeah, short answer, heck yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I've got my master's in history, and, and I'm, I, I love using art to bring up ideas, I think the challenge for us, especially in in a low-income uh, inner-city school, is making sure that kids have the, the, the context. 
the background information in order to make make good judgments um, on the work of art. So, like for for instance, uh, like the idea of the the history of history of how history is being taught in America. There was a standard way in which history was taught, and like you taught the founding fathers in these hushed tones, and that was the way you know as as these. Um, almost godlike figures that bestowed upon uh, this country the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, Bill of Rights, um, and this this work of art seems like it was made as a counter narrative to that. However, now in 2019, that has been lost. It seems like students and 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 some adults apparently have really lost the background and don't understand the context in which that piece of art was written. And so the challenge for me as a teacher is giving the students the background information enough um, to really understand where the work of art is coming from. I completely agree with you because it's our job to be able to have our students entertain that ambiguity, to understand, you know, tension and contradiction and this this entitlement of when we're offended to ignore the information that we're offended by. You're saying, I mean, you're saying um, on the part of students, uh, the, a sense of entitlement when they're offended by something to kind of shut down and, tr- and turn away from it. I'm not going to say just students. Yeah. I'm going to say there's a bigger thought process happening there. You know, to disregard the creative ambiguity, I think it's our job as teachers to help students process that, to be able to entertain multiple positions. I'm greatly, greatly concerned with with the whitewashing, the literal just removal of this because it is difficult is to – I mean we don't avoid the difficult in the classroom. You you learn about it. You talk about it. You know, you you understand there's not going to be resolution. David. Um, I agree with everything that – with everything that's being said by everyone. I – think we're underestimating students' capacity to discern. It'll speak to my own experience, but I talk to my students about this stuff too, and I think, I mean, as an African-American male, I see less than ideal depictions and portrayals of myself all over the place. I've seen them since I was young. I don't think that this particular art piece is any more jarring than the depiction of my people in some sort of film or piece of media. I think age appropriateness matters and knowing that this is a high school definitely makes me feel like it's even more of a reason to be okay with this. But from my perspective, when I hear this, and, I, and, and I'm going to name that this is a bit presumptuous, but I'm imagining that the main people who are moving forward with trying to ban this are probably not people of color. Like I don't have the full context, but in my experiences, knowing that oftentimes white folks or people who are just not proximate to the issue are offended or have a drawing reaction to this piece of artwork that they see, and they will project their guilt, frustrations, insecurities, um, and, you know, just apprehension towards it onto someone else and be like, oh, oh, poor you. Like, you can't see this and handle this well. Like, you know, I don't know. That just... Yeah. The, I mean, I will say from what I've read about this situation, some of the members of the committee were local right. were local indigenous, indigenous rights activists, mm, okay. at least some of them. I appreciate that. Um, but to your, to your broader point, David, um, it sounds like you think your students um, are prepared intellectually to engage with complex, potentially offensive pieces of art. Absolutely. And so what does that... I mean, what it, for all of you, what does that look like in your schools? I mean, how do you try to get them to, as Rebecca said... Um, live in the ambiguity and think about potentially ambiguous pieces of art. My per- I, I'm an elementary school teacher. <laughs> right, it looks right, a little yeah, different yeah, for yeah. younger people. <laughs> but I try to bring in every band book I can find that works for my kids. Because I, I think we're in that realm now of a difficult 
I mean, something difficult. You don't ban books. You don't paint over art. You don't remove music from a curriculum. Uh, you you look at it. You talk about it. You talk about it from this side and that side and your side and my side. And and, and we talk about why we have to talk about that. Yeah. Um, and to put it, yeah. I mean, and to put a, a real pin in it, uh, Dr. Khalid, I mean, at George Washington High School in San Francisco, I mean, I think to extend your line of argument, there's an opportunity for teachers and students at that school to uh, have a history lesson about uh, the artist Victor Arnatoff, about the uh, Works Progress Administration of which he was working when he painted this mural, uh-huh. the Great Depression. So, I mean, there is there is a history lesson latent in this mural being in this school, right? Absolutely. I mean, I feel like there are many history lessons, right? There's a history lesson of the artist, about the context when he did this, about how history has been taught in schools, about the content itself, about how this painting is not glorifying slavery, but is in fact a critique of it, or, um, you know, the genocide of Native Americans, but is in fact exposing it and is making us confront it. So it's not just one history lesson, there are many, many history lessons, and it would be um, many opportunities that I feel would, that would be lost uh, should it be removed. It's interesting to me, just as a history person, that over 80 years, I mean, we know teachers, this conversation has happened. I can't think of any history teacher who would have that at their disposal in their own building and not take advantage of some conversation about it. I I could see that happening if you're you're talking about, like, your class is the one being, has a state test coming up, and you've got to get through X curriculum. Where is this big, big, big deep conversation going to happen where are you going to fit that in the curriculum mm-hmm. and that is that that's the challenge when you're you're talking like about it. history cuz you have a finite amount of time and you've got this amount of history to teach yeah i mean mm-hmm. well greg your question brings up another question i mean for all three of you and for dr khalid as well i mean should there be limits is there a clear line to what students should not be exposed to in school when it comes to what we've been discussing, which is uh, challenging pieces of art, artwork, creative expression um, that might uh, toe a line of ambiguity that could, um, for some people, cross over into offensiveness. Is is there a clear line or should there, I mean, should there even be a clear line when we're talking about art in schools? I mean, I, I think that's really rough because kids are exposed to so much just mm-hmm. online anyway. Yeah, they're going to they're gonna see it. So, yeah. like, it, it, it depends on, on the teacher and what, what the teacher you know, brings in. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, go ahead, David. Sorry, I guess for me it's maybe a matter of how graphic it is. It, that the mural is intense, but I don't think it's particularly graphic right. um, in terms of I like agree. you know, there's not a ton of blood and like things like that. But I think like that matters, you know. I do agree, and it's and and you said it earlier when this is in a high school, mm-hmm. and that's a very different context with other pieces around it than would be in an elementary school. Yeah, I mean that's two very different walks to the cafeteria mm-hmm. every day. I get that. Um, I think it you have to take into account the relationships you have with students, you have with colleagues, you have with your community, because um, I'm very I'm very leery about drawing those lines mm-hmm. and. And what we what we expose and what we don't expose, because now we're back to being complicit and we are complicit. We have a huge role to put this in front of students or to contextualize it for students correctly. I mean, that what that's what's gotten us in the problem in the first place. You know, I I don't think you leave it out because it's difficult, but I think you have to be intentional and you have to be proactive about it and understand how it's going to fit in the community that you're doing it in. So do you – what would you say to our teachers or teachers in general who are teaching in a climate where um, 
something that is said or a piece of art that is viewed or something that is used during a lesson uh, could be construed as being offensive? Like, what, what should teachers do? I think teachers should confront it head-on, talk about why it's offensive. That's a good way to open up um, conversation about the context in which it's produced. And then to say, you know, what are the different ways in which something can be understood? And that is a great way to get into a conversation about being sensitive to um, historical thinking. Um, I feel like we live in ahistorical times where people do not want to engage with context, do not want to engage with intention, um, but just kind of react. So using that as a means to kind of question this reactive way um, would be fantastic. Any final questions from our teachers? Final points? I found it very helpful. That makes me want to do better. I appreciate that conversation very much. I mean, and Rebecca never really cares about offending people, so. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think it is my intent. <laughs> well, Dr. Amna Khalid, a professor of history at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. Thank you so much for joining us on No Wrong Answers. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Our podcast today is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation, learning together with families, educators, entrepreneurs, and innovators to develop quality education that prepares all of Kansas City students for the future of learning and work. Join the conversation by visiting Kauffman.org or on Twitter at KauffmanFDN. The word valedictorian is derived from the Latin phrase valedicere. I did not take Latin, so I don't know if I said that correctly. <laughs> I did. And that was awesome. <laughs> okay, good. Which means roughly to say goodbye. That's increasingly appropriate because many high schools in the U.S. are getting rid of the springtime tradition of picking valedictorians for graduation. Take William Mason High School in Mason, Ohio, just north of Cincinnati. Perennially regarded as one of the best high schools in Ohio academically, officials there announced recently that this would be the last year the school's graduation would have a valedictorian. District officials told the Cincinnati Inquirer that the move is being done in part to improve students' mental health and tamp down on an overly competitive environment as students try to outdo each other in order to win valedictorian honors. The tradition of naming a valedictorian started in American colleges back in colonial times and eventually migrated to high schools in the 1920s. The practice in many places has long been criticized for being opaque and elitist, but some argue ditching valedictorians now may actually have the paradoxical effect of penalizing traditionally marginalized, marginalized groups of students just at the time when many of them are starting to more regularly break into the valedictorian ranks. So, for my high school teachers here... Greg and David, and of course, Rebecca, you're elementary school, but you teach at a campus that is K through 12. I do. You won't be surprised that I have an opinion on this, but I will defer to my secondary <laughs> colleagues. Throw, throw any topic out, and you're going to have an opinion on it, Rebecca. You're uh, welcome. <laughs> and it is that time of year, graduation time. Uh, so all of your schools still have valedictorians in some way. Do you see a value in having a valedictorian at your school? Yeah, I don't see a problem with you know, honoring excellence per se like i i think the, the problem is um it, how it's done um and maybe the pressure is put on and, and in my experience the pressure isn't necessarily coming from teachers or admin on students the pressure is coming from either the students themselves or the parents mm. of the students pressuring the kids and if the system put in is in some ways could be seen as unfair or 
breeds a a culture of unhealthy competition. That that's where it becomes that's where it becomes a problem. Uh, the, the other problem that I see is that because it is cumulative GPA, that usually you know from their freshman year, you know who's got a really good shot at being valedictorian, and it's usually about three to five kids. And they're really the only ones who've got a shot, and it's those five kids in competition. Having other measures and having other, other types of awards, I think that's key because if not, you, you're going to have really a, an award that is only for that small 1% of students. Yeah, I, I think back to my own high school experience. I think we knew by our sophomore year like who was probably going to be valedictorian. It was narrowed down to, like you said, like three to five kids who had already been taking – you know, like honors classes and AP classes when they were freshmen. So their cumulative GPA was already so advanced ahead that mm-hmm. we are, I mean, we as the student body already kind of knew. Mm-hmm. Um, not that that took away from their accomplishment, but I mean, I guess it might take away from from any sense of like, you know, someone hoping or thinking they, they could be valedictorian. Yeah. yeah, it's not like you can, like your junior year, decide to ramp it up and get four, you know, and you may get a 4.0 GPA your junior senior year and it's not going to matter, sadly. Mm-hmm. We... I mean, our score is relatively small, the school I work at, and I feel like there is an equal opportunity for every student to achieve at a level that, like, we don't offer so many different subjects, and there's only so many stratifications of, like, a student's course trajectory through right. high school that, you know... And to be clear, you, you teach at a tar- charter school, yep. so, like, there's, yeah, there's just, it's smaller, yeah, there's, exactly. there's fewer course offerings, there's fewer opportunities to get yeah, a so higher GPA, to that extent, weighted courses. I don't feel like any student in ninth grade comes in with any more of an upper hand than any other mm-hmm. student, and so even though by 10th, 11th grade, they does have... that make Does that make the eventual bestowal of the valedictorian honor more meaningful or substantive, you think? Um... I think so. I think it shows a consistency, a consistent, a consistency in academic excellence. I like that we do as a school also like applaud and have awards for other students who have improved, who do community service. Like we do those types of things already because even though we pride ourselves in academics, we know like to your point, pillars of NHS, um, those are really important in making sure that we are like grooming and cultivating well-rounded citizens. But like our school's mission is to send students to college, and so we are going to model our primary incentives in a way that's analogous to the way colleges do. And that's, you know, academic achievement comes first. And that's what we, um, you know, prioritize, Um, you know. Do do kids still care about valedictorian? You bet they do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I I think it's it's one of those differences between buildings, between districts. uh, Your experience with a small group that's probably moved together through their academic career is going to be very different than my district with a class of 600. Many students who are so transient and in and out, also who we've tracked since Mm, middle school into maybe a career pathway. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're, you know, the wide diversity of programs available now doesn't doesn't afford them to really be in competition with each other. That's fair. So I think it looks so different. Right. And so then like that tracking kind of just you you narrow down the the number of kids who actually can actually get valedictorian salutatorian. Precisely. And so then the competition, again, like Mm -hmm. what we said beforehand, it just it narrows down to just a small band of kids. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. What I do think you think about this idea at Mason High of taking away the valedictorian as a way to help students' mental health? Is that something that you guys can empathize with at all at your campuses? No, because no. in the real world, in college, <laughs> in the workplace, I mean— I go back to your point about you knew the, the kids that are interested in this are working on it. The kids this is not a priority for, 
are not paying attention to it. Yeah. I think it's so specific. Yeah. I don't think anybody was damaged mentally. Yes, the pressure is tremendous I, for that group. I get it. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah. I think it yeah. may be incumbent upon schools to make sure, like, students, that pressure doesn't have them completely crack. But, like, that pressure is also natural in my experiences. I'd like to think I create safe enough spaces for students that, like, when the pressure is put on, they, they rise and elevate. But that's because mm-hmm. they're given the necessary tools to succeed. And then it's intrinsic, and yeah, they're motivated no, to do that, it. Exactly. It's not you you pushing or parents pushing. or it's, Yeah, it's, like that pressure they yeah. feel in themselves I think mm-hmm. is healthy mm-hmm. within certain bounds. But obviously, like, there are, I think, instances where it goes too far. But oftentimes I don't think that's the students entirely putting pressure on themselves. Maybe it's their parents. Maybe it's Well, yeah, other... and let's, let's name this too. I mean, Mason High, the example I gave, is a mostly white high school in the suburbs of Cincinnati. All three of you teach at campuses that are very different from that. And race does play a part in this. I just want to quote educational historian John Thielen of the University of Kentucky. Um, He wrote recently that taking away valedictorians could actually hurt students of color. He points out that valedictorian honors for centuries have been the preserve of white men because, I mean, education, at least um, at the elite levels, often was um, the preserve of white men. Um, So getting rid of valedictorians or modifying the valedictorian structure can pose a dilemma for modern high schools because, as Thielen writes, and I'll quote him here, the valedictorian honor is beginning to disappear at many schools just as students from diverse backgrounds are becoming the first students of their background in their schools to win the honor. Um, Do you agree? I mean, should schools that serve students of color still keep valedictorians because this is a deserved honor for students from um, communities that have long been marginalized? Is that part of the of the thinking here. You, you brought up a, um, a thought in my head. I just realized this in thinking about it. And, and I just had graduation yesterday. It was my 15th year at, at this school, um, in a charter school. So 15th graduation, and I'm pretty sure we've only had two, maybe three male valedictorians. Hmm. Almost all of them have been female. Yep. Mm-hmm. Same for me. Yeah. And again, Greg, yeah, you teach I, at a primarily uh, Latino school, right? Yeah, right. And so I just, I man, that's 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 a great opportunity that that you know it, it gives kids, um, just it opens up more doors. So yeah, I think we we need to keep that. And you wouldn't yeah. trade. I mean, you wouldn't trade that for anything. To no. get, give those young women in mo- the most cases at your school that opportunity. Yeah, and and in reading about the case in in Ohio, it seemed like the 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 system there was set up. The system bred an unhealthy competition among among students, and so instead of changing the system that was engendering that unhealthy competition, they were just getting r- rid of the uh, the the award, which just seems kind of wrongheaded. So Band aid fix, yeah, it's not going to work. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah. As long as colleges place value upon class rank, you know, which you know, even if you're mm-hmm. not one or two, if you're in the top ten percent, top twenty five percent, top fifty percent, those are things that colleges place high value upon. And, you know, my school, my school is 95% African-American. You don't have to be valedictorian or salutatorian, but if you've excelled academically, your rank typically reflects that, and that typically has huge implications for us in terms of not only their admissions, but the amount of scholarships they get and all those different things. And so we can really talk about blowing up the system entirely, but if college is still a priority for many of our kids, you know, if not all of them, then as long as colleges place value upon that, then I think we have to make sure we're giving them a realistic sense of what they're going to be getting themselves into and making sure they have all the advantages to try to take advantage of for themselves. Fair wages, housing subsidies, curricular freedom, small class size, a sense of respect 
These are some of the benefits being sold by a growing number of private international schools, which are, as USA Today recently reported, increasingly trying to recruit American teachers in an attempt to capitalize on teachers' growing frustration with the state of education in their own country. Among those leaving, Nate Bowling, Washington State's 2016 Teacher of the Year, who's also a prominent education advocate on social media, he announced earlier this year that he's leaving to take a job teaching in the United Arab Emirates. He told USA Today that he loves his current school, colleagues, and students, but needed to, in his words, do something different to stay in the teaching profession. Now, is Bowling's situation unique, or is there something to the idea that teaching abroad, especially with some of the perks being offered nowadays, could be an attractive career choice for fed-up American teachers? So just to be clear, international schools, that's what we're talking about here. So typically private schools usually catering to the middle and upper middle class families in a local um, country population as well as maybe some American expatriates. Um, The group International Schools Consultancy says there are now more than 10,000 of these schools across the globe um, from Malaysia to Mexico, Egypt to Ecuador. Um, And the consultancy predicts that these schools will need, get this, nearly 900,000 teachers worldwide over the next decade or so. Not all of them will be Americans, but I'm sure many of them will be Americans. So I guess what I'm asking, should I worry any of you are going to leave anytime soon? (laughs) Going to go to Indonesia? (laughs) Have have you all taught abroad? I have not. I have not. My my sister actually did her student teaching in Italy, Mm -hmm. but that was through the Department of Defense, which is a totally different ball game i think but like it the appeal is there right like yeah, i mean if somebody gave me a job offer but but here's the thing like i would love a job offer to go teach somewhere else but but knowing that i could come back and have my old job again oh well, there's the catch there's, right? the, there's, there's the catch right if, if i can go teach somewhere else for a couple of years it, you know like spain that'd be great well so in all back. seriousness are are you attracted by what these schools have to offer what would it take to get you to teach abroad at one of these schools I mean, I'll point to Nate Bowling's example, right? He, right. he, Washington State Teacher of the Year, experienced enough teacher. He was making close to ninety thousand dollars. That's what he said. I was like, that's what, that's the job he was leaving, in order to get just to change the scene. Wow. What would it take you? I think it's teachers, and I'm I'm going to sp- I'll speak for me. I'm not for all, but we know a lot of teachers. Um, it becomes another. I mean, teachers keep going to school. Teachers just are in that kind of constant. I'm not going to say lifelong learner because we're not, but yeah, we are. That's what you do as a teacher. You just, you do the next thing. Mm -hmm. You go get more education. Mm -hmm. And I think teachers see that as the next degree, the Mm -hmm. next thing to go do and learn. And so I think for many teachers, it's after some credentialing, you go do that because you're going to bring it back. Just like you said, you're going to bring it back and now use it in your classroom. There's a pull um, to kind of grow professionally, a, a new, a new professional is. challenge. It's, it's PD. It's growth. It's that connectivity. Mm-hmm. If we're going to preach global, global student, we have to be one ourselves. Yeah. You know, all of that. I have always been personally way too connected to my school yeah. family. Yeah. And I'm not brave in that way mm-hmm. no. to step out of that. Yeah. So I, but so very appreciative of colleagues that have gone to do that and come back, you know, and, and use that information. Yeah, I have so many different thoughts around this topic. I have, like, probably, like, 20 friends in the last mm-hmm. four years who have started teaching abroad, including my former roommate who is in, is in Korea um, right now teaching. I think he, he – yeah, he just finished his first year. I think he's coming back after this. He had an option this day. But mm-hmm. I think he, um, you know, uh, felt like he had kind of gotten out of it what he – wanted to get out of it but 
I don't know. It's interesting to me. I, I I would be curious of like what the mean time, like how many years they had taught in the states before they decided to travel out. Because I'm just thinking through my own mind, but I feel like there was a window of time, maybe between my second, third, maybe fourth year in the classroom, where I was like, oh, this is something I'd consider. But like now that I am in the fifth year of my school, and like I feel like I have so much skin in the game, it's very hard for me to just feel like I could do that. You know, mm-hmm. like I know how many issues and problems that are happening within my community, within my school, within my students. And not that those aren't happening elsewhere, but for me, it feels like there's plenty for me to continue to like deal with here in Kansas City with mm-hmm. with my school and my community, mm-hmm. with our students. Well, yeah, what do you mean by both you and Rebecca kind of mentioned that? What do you mean by skin in the game? What is it that, and Greg, you can chime in as well. Um, what is it that you would miss about your school, your situation, um, if you moved? I think personally, it'd be the the mission that we have, which is um, like the unique American uh, mission of teaching everybody, which which brings its own heartaches and mm-hmm. and problems and, and nightmares and everything. But yeah, we try to teach everybody, and then going to a, a school that is a private, you know, a private school. Um, for select students abroad just seems to like that just man it, it, it to me in, in some ways it almost seemed like running away from from the fight mm-hmm. oh, I love what you said stop talking right there that was it <laughs> I'll retire that was it <laughs> right yeah, there that's a mic drop moment nothing like a little graduation to give you perspective <laughs> yeah, right exactly. you're, you're up all here fired right up. now yeah. Yeah. you're yeah. up here sorry to provide <laughs> a counter perspective because I love being devil's advocate sometimes it's interesting talking to some of my friends who have taught abroad because the, the consistent thing I do here and mind you, like my friend who's teaching Cree, he's teaching at like um, government schools. Like, like I have some friends who work in public schools, but they tend to be more affluent ones still. But they aren't like completely selective per se. But even for those who work at less than ideal schools, it seems like there's a wet, a much better culture around the way educators are respected and treated. Hmm. Yeah. And if nothing else, for me. I would be very curious as to what that looks like because, quite frankly, it's hard for me to, like, rationalize what that looks like. Like, I can't completely comprehend that, you know. Like, I've done it long enough to win the respect of my students and to earn that trust, but – and I'm not that far removed from my students, but at least in my generation, I know the generation before that. Like, like the respect to teachers was an assumption. It was given. You trusted that they were going to do right by you and do their best – this generation of young people, um, for whatever reason, don't operate that way. At least so you're the saying the, the friends that you have who have been working abroad, who you, you've heard about their experience, you say that they do feel more respected. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Within the community, within all their circles, and they're not even natives or locals, you know? Like, they're foreigners who are coming in, but to that extent, you know, it's not only them, it's all teachers, right? Whether they are um, those who have traveled in to work there or people who you know, are um, indigenous to that community, they still get that that same level of respect that I feel like is not well, the norm here in American schools. Well, what does it say about teaching in the U.S. that this is now apparently a trend that um, international schools are, in essence, targeting American teachers, not only because they know English, and that's a valuable skill to be able to, to have and teach to other people abroad, but maybe also because they know American teachers are frustrated. <laughs> speaks to their awareness and understanding of that problem. It's interesting, (laughs) but the conversation that we were just having is not out of frustration. No, it's not. It's it's not out of frustration. It's it's educational opportunity. Definitely. It's it's globalization. It's bigger than that. And I get there's the frustrated piece. There's going to be people looking for that. 
Um, and you all have felt bound to your schools because as well of a greater sense of responsibility and drive. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah Which, or may, maybe it's a bit of Stockholm so- Syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> Fair point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's Interesting. Funny. It's funny. I mean, I, you, none of you have taught abroad, apparently, but I have. I taught in India for a year. Dope. Not we're at we're an, just now hearing that. Yeah. What? Not at, not at an international you? school. Um, it was so not at one of these private schools. We, we taught at a. It was actually run by a Muslim foundation, so we taught at. Um, uh, actually, I taught at two separate campuses. So my interesting reflection about that was that, even abroad, even in other contexts in other countries, it still really, really matters how your schools run because both yeah. of those schools. I taught at two schools, and they were, at nearly two polar opposite experiences. One school was very well managed. I would walk into a class of sixty. And all the students would rise when I walked into class, and they would sit down and pin drop silent as I taught the lesson. I taught conversational English, so I was up there like speaking conversations, and they would repeat back to me what they were saying. But the other school <laughs> was not as well managed, yeah. and you know would have not as big a class, but still like forty kids in a class, and had a lot of the same types of management issues that you would have in the U.S. You know, mm-hmm. kids like trying to talk over you, kids like sassing back to me in their local language, Malayalam. So, so I couldn't even understand them, but, you know, but I could, I could still, I could still see the teenage, you know I could still see yeah. the teenage you attitude in their eyes. Um, so it's like, you know, same kinds of problems and, you know, kids wouldn't listen and kids would walk in and out of class and kids wouldn't, res- you know, be respectful. All that to say, you know, I think, yeah, the, I, the idea that there are some schools abroad where you, you walk in and you are the golden, you know, you know, person put up on a pedestal, you're the teacher. Like, yes, maybe, but then again, Kids are kids. Yeah. Maybe not. They are. They are. Yeah, we could, I could go on and on about teaching in India, but we'll have to like reverse. <laughs> we'll have to, we'll have to do a reverse yeah. podcast. Yes. Yeah. All right. Really well, before we go to kids these days, let's tell you about some of the other education stories that caught our eye recently. It's time for the headlines. Democratic presidential hopeful Elizabeth Warren says if she is elected to the White House in 2020, she will appoint Rebecca McIntosh as her education secretary. No, she didn't say that. (laughs) That's tremendously dangerous. She will appoint someone who has been a public school teacher as her education secretary in an email and video message to supporters. Warren says, let's get a person with real teaching experience, a person who understands how low pay, tattered textbooks and crumbling classrooms hurt students and educators. She's also very good at alliteration. Um, Warren, <laughs> Warren also calls current education secretary Betsy DeVos the, quote, worst education secretary we've seen, end quote. So, Rebecca, be waiting for the call. It doesn't have to be me, but it can't be Betsy anymore. Yes, absolutely. Health officials in Kansas are sounding the alarm about e-cigarettes. Officials with the state health department told the state board of education recently that a third of high school students in the state tried vaping at least once in 2017 and that one in 10 are regular users of e-cigarettes. Nationally, vaping continues to explode. It's a topic we've talked about before on this podcast. Health officials say teen vaping went up 80 percent between 2017 and 2018. Still got kids vaping? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Anytime I ask, that's what it is. And in an apparent attempt to level the playing field, the College Board will expand its use of so-called adversity scores on student SAT results. These adversity scores are calculated using a matrix of more than a dozen factors, including students' family income and neighborhood environment. College Board officials say adversity scores will appear alongside students' traditional SAT scores for colleges to see and evaluate. Use of adversity scores was piloted at 50 colleges last year, and now they're expanding their use to at least 150 more 
colleges this coming school year. Interesting development. We've talked about the SAT and ACT before and how it's been unfair. Well, those are some of the stories in the education world that caught our eye recently. Coming up, kids these days. But first, this episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by the Kauffman Foundation. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook, follow us on Twitter, just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and once you do, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard on this episode, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, kids these days, Greg... What yeah. are your kids into? Oh, man, so much. Um, I wish I had one for gradu- for graduation, which just happened yesterday for us. But I think I, the thing that sticks, sticks out in my mind the most is I had a conversation on Friday with my honors class about the recent abortion law that was passed in Alabama and is about to be passed here in Missouri. We should say it has been approved. It's has not been signed, signed by the governor yet. yet, but was approved by the legislature. Yes. Right. And um, just the discussion we had about that um, and... I think that that a couple of of the kids in that class had had discussions about it elsewhere because they they came armed and ready. Uh, it, it was telling also that that the most most of the boys just stayed quiet and stayed out of the conversation. It was it was mostly the females, um, which also included one of, one of our females um, is currently pregnant, is eight months pregnant, um, and just the the um, I wouldn't say despair, but just the 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 anger that was there towards towards this bill. Um, and just for our listeners who might not be living in Missouri, the law that the Missouri lawmakers passed, it, it will essentially ban most abortions after about eight weeks. The heart, the, it's a fetal heartbeat bill. Uh, no exceptions for rape or incest. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. And they just I, I think they they see it fairly clearly for, for what it is, or at least they, they say it's it's Do you saying your high school controlled. students upset by this. I mean, they, yeah, they, yeah, very, yeah. Very much upset hmm. by this. Um, and I have to remind—I had to remind them, and I have to remind myself of this too—that that coming from the background we come from in the inner city, their perspective is very liberal. And I have to remind them also that there's a good chunk of the American population or the population here in this state that actually supports bills like this. Mm-hmm. And and when I bring that up, that just kind of blows their mind because they're like, "Who? Who would? Who? Who?" And I'm like, um, "Just get outside of the city, guys. It's not that far of a drive, actually." <laughs> Uh, and I have to keep that in mind because they, again, they, they live kind of in that bubble. Um, but they, they are totally attuned to the current events and, and mm. seeing what's going on. Yeah. Rebecca McIntosh, what are your kids into? Well, we're, it's a weird part of the year. It's, it's difficult. <laughs> um, I don't know if the high school kids are aware that there was the new Pokemon movie last week. Detective Pokemon. Detective Pokemon was was. Now that I've been paying attention to such things, <laughs> thanks for that, Mr. Hey, Palmer. Ready. I'm glad I can't get anything past you. Um, so we've talked a lot about that. Was great excitement about Pokemon, um, and it's that time of year when, quite frankly, the best teaching gets done. People are hanging on. There's a lot more dancing and music and art and field day and Pioneer Day and all the honors stuff happens in in the elementary buildings. So take care of your teachers, kids. They're not okay right now. <laughs> Detective Pokemon is it's a kids movie, right? I mean, it's 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 marketed for kids. Do you know that? Yes. Okay. Yes. What are your kids' thoughts about it? They they gave it thumbs up. Yeah. They enjoyed it. They were okay with it. I feel like it's it, from what I've read about it, it's been a surprising surprising hit. 
I have not seen it. I <laughs> guess I'll get to it in the summer. Yeah, maybe not. Watch this now. Yeah. But it's got. They liked it. <laughs> they liked it, and they're kind of mine. Mine right now are kind of in that middle. They're not real Pokemon people yet. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. but they enjoyed the film. Yeah. David, what are your kids into? Um, less of a trend. We're just in the thick of testing. Finals are this upcoming week for our seniors. Um, all of our ninth through eleventh graders have been taking state tests, and so it's just been a uh, uh, a lot of grinding for our kids, but um, I don't know. For as weird a year as it's been, I'm really proud of them for sticking out. I think everybody's just a little bit tired and ready to be weird because done. of snow uh, days. Snow days. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, I think I think what we're feeling in in May right now is like the April fatigue. Because normally in May it's like we're all about business, and it's just been I don't know, like pulling teeth. But they they've stepped up the past few weeks and are. Getting ready to wrap up BOC, so after that we'll we'll get there. Hopefully, slow well, good down luck. And enjoy You're almost the there. Last few weeks. You're almost there, David. Yeah. Well, thanks to our teachers this week: Greg Brenner, Rebecca McIntosh, and David Persley. Thanks as always to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast. Thank you to KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. And remember, kids, be, be nice, nice to your, your teachers. teachers. Is a very may be nice to your teachers. <laughs> so, <laughs> should we do that again? Or, or, I'm just else? like, uh, so was it, nice. was it was a very uh, end, of, end of the year. Uh, be nice to was your it teachers. Was <laughs> <laughs>